Welcome to the Sustainability Agenda podcast. My name is Fraggle Byrne. Every week I speak to leading figures from the world of sustainability and explore the sustainability agenda in marketing and strategy, technology, innovation, investment and finance. We look at the latest thinking, what's working and the future and evolution of the sustainability agenda. Basically, we're talking about the fundamental building blocks of the living planet and of the ecological systems that support humanity. So whether it's something that is behind a prescription you get at your pharmacy or it's behind the way the Amazon works and makes half of its own rainfall and has given us rubber and chocolate, but also the angio tensin inhibitors, which people use to control their blood pressure in the world, we cannot exist without a biological support system. I'm very pleased today to introduce Dr. Thomas Lovejoy to the podcast. Dr. Lovejoy is a tropical biologist and conservation biologist and known as the godfather of biodiversity. He's a senior fellow at the United Nations Foundation and university professor in the Environmental Science and Policy Department at George Mason University. Dr. Lovejoy was the World Bank's Chief Biodiversity Advisor and the Lead Specialist for Environment for Latin America and the Caribbean, as well as Senior Advisor to the President of the United Nations Foundation. He serves on many scientific and conservation boards and advisory groups and is the author of numerous articles and books. So, Thank you very much, Tom, for taking the time today to speak to the Sustainability Agenda podcast. Well, delighted to do it. Great. So um, maybe a good place to start is to talk a little bit about what you do today, Tom, uh, what, what your main uh, roles are. I know you wear many hats and then maybe uh, a little bit of, by way of background of how you, 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 you became interested, I guess, in biology and uh, biodiversity and, and, and all of this important uh, work. Well, actually, I, I became interested in the variety of life on Earth. Uh, and there was no term biological diversity at that point when I was 14. And I've just been literally fascinated by the sheer variety of it all. Um, and ultimately, you know, turned my science to conservation biology uh, and sort of my policy orientation towards conservation and environment. Great. Great. And, and that was a, a while ago. <laughs> Quite a while. <laughs> yes. Yes. And so, so, so how, how do you characterize uh, biological diversity, Tom? So biological diversity is a way to collectively refer to the variety of life on Earth, the number of species, uh, plants, animals and microorganisms, but also their, the g genetic variety within each one. Uh, the uh, variety of habitats and, and major biological formations in the world. And it's just a collective term. And it can sometimes seem a bit uh, amorphous or, or difficult to pin down. How, how do you measure this? And, and, and why does it matter? I mean, it's probably a big topic, uh, uh, the, the question of measurement in itself. But, um, you know, how would you know that, that we had good biodiversity versus, you know, poor biodiversity? And, and, and why does it matter? Well, you could do it in a very simple kind of way and just simply count the number of species that are surviving uh, and get some sense of whether that's declining, which is more often than not the case. 
And basically, we're talking about the fundamental building blocks of the living planet and of the ecological systems that support humanity. So whether it's something that is behind a prescription you get at your pharmacy, or it's behind the way the Amazon works and makes half of its own rainfall, uh, and has given us rubber and chocolate, uh, but also uh, the angiotensin inhibitors, which people use to control their blood pressure in the world. Uh, we are benefiting from biological diversity every second of the day, even if we're not aware. Right. I, and I, you often read that there's, you know, thousands of species that haven't even been, you know, identified yet. And, 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 and you know, there's a proliferation that were really, you know, understood or discovered and uh, mapped out only a small part of, you know, the richness of, of the biological diversity. So why does it matter? And is there some level at which it matters, you know, it, 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 that it falls below or, or how, how do you think about that question? So it matters because, you know, that's the support system that underlies human civilization. Uh, we cannot exist uh, without a biological support system. Uh, even if, you know, in our cities, it seems an illusion to the contrary. Uh, everybody is depending on the variety of life on earth in one way or another they just may not be aware yes yeah um and when you first coined the term what was the nearest uh concept or way people thought about this idea well people have been really interested in the in diversity in nature the number of species on islands uh for example what sets the number of species on different kinds of islands and maybe you could collectively refer to it as nature, but nat nature as a term really doesn't convey that in incredible variety uh, of life on Earth. And how aware would you say people are today about the importance of biodiversity? I mean, I guess there's the scientific community and then there's probably the well, the policy and government levels and, and that kind of thing, but also the general uh, population so it's it's highly variable. Um, you know there are there are government people all around the world who who actually focus on biological diversity on a daily basis. Uh, but I would say the vast majority of people uh, are pretty oblivious to it, especially those that live in cities. Those that live outside or on farms are, are having to deal with uh, plants and animals, you know, on a daily basis. So they are likely to be a bit more aware, but maybe not of the overall impoverishment that biological diversity is experiencing. Right. How bad are things? Well, I mean, there, uh, there are lots and lots and lots of negative signs uh, and trends. Um, but like anything else, there's, you know, a plus side of the agenda as well as the minus side. So I always like to point out when I first arrived in the Amazon, there was only one national park. 
and only 3% deforested. Uh, and people know there's been a lot of deforestation going on in the Amazon, but they generally are totally surprised to discover uh, that today about 50%, 5-0% of the Amazon is under some kind of formal protection. Right, that is an impressive figure. But I guess uh, that's got to be weighed up against um, uh, this, I guess, this idea of a tipping point or um, the, the idea that at a certain level of uh, deforestation that uh, maybe it doesn't matter whether 50% is being protected or not, but that the actual system no longer functions in a kind of holistic way. Um, and I, I know there's some figures that suggest there's already 16, 17% deforested. Um, what, what is your sense of the, the kind of limits there and uh, how dangerous is it to, you know, to get close to those? So, so one of the really interesting things about the Amazon is that it, in fact, makes half of its own rainfall. Uh, something which shattered the dogma of the time, which said that vegetation was simply the consequence of climate, had no influence on climate. Uh, well, we now know because of the Amazon that that is not true and that you need a, a minimum amount of forest, uh, which is probably around 80 percent, uh, to keep that hydrological cycle intact. And if you don't manage the Amazon as a system with that in mind, uh, then you stand to to lose a great part of it uh, and have it convert to a, a grassland vegetation and lose all the biodiversity uh, in the process. Wow, that's uh, very scary. Um, there is a governance mechanism in, in place now or some kind of organization is there a cooperative between the different countries, which seems to be a, a move, a very positive move. But it also raises the question more generally of, um, who looks after and is there some governance uh, mechanism to uh, think about and, and monitor uh, and take action around biodiversity? Well, there is the Convention on Biological Diversity, which came into existence in 1992 at the Earth Summit, along with the Climate Convention and the Desertification Convention. So that's the primary inter international instrument. But all of, all of these kinds of things uh, then come down to what goes on at the national level. And all the parties to the Biodiversity Convention uh, are doing things on a daily basis uh, to protect biological diversity and report on its state uh, and try and improve the long-term trajectory. Is it going well? Is it a good governance system? It seems there, there are so many you know, environmental challenges and, uh, and certainly climate change is, is, is really on the horizon. Is there uh, momentum and, and energy to support uh, biodiversity? Is there danger of getting crowded out with some of the other seemingly more immediate environmental problems? So I don't think it's in danger of getting crowded out. It is endangered as the other environmental challenges uh, and trajectories are endangered uh, by not being big enough and fast enough. Uh, we have to change the scale and the rate in which we are tackling these things. Right. And yeah, you said uh, you, you're working on a new book connected to uh, climate change. Can you talk about the relationship between uh, biological diversity and, and climate change? 
So to begin with, you just start with the obvious fact that uh, every species has a particular set of climatic conditions under which it occurs. So when climate changes, uh, that gets changed as well. Uh, and so climate change virtually affects all species on Earth. And there's not a place you can go today where you can't see the fingerprints of climate change, uh, whether it's species that are changing their annual cycle or species that are changing where they occur geographically. And much more disturbingly, uh, at least two major situations in which there is essentially ecosystem collapse going on. One of those being tropical coral reefs, which are very sensitive to elevated temperature. Uh, and just go into essentially what are called bleaching events uh, when almost all the diversity of the reef crashes uh, and the whole technicolor world goes black and white. And another of these uh, are the coniferous forests of Western North America where a native bark beetle uh, is basically uh, had the, the balance tipped in its favor and in many places, you have up to 70% of the trees are, are standing but dead. Uh, so what that basically says is that climate models and vegetation models uh, won't be able to predict those kinds of things because they come down to specific idiosyncratic relationships between a couple key species. Uh, and if we cast our, high, our eyes forward, I think any climate change beyond one and a half degrees creates a world which is biologically unmanageable, uh, which things are falling apart left and right. Uh, so the good news in all of that is there is actually a huge amount of carbon in the atmosphere from centuries of destruction and degradation of ecosystems. And if we do the sensible thing and do ecosystem restoration for a lot of that, that's reforestation, uh, restoring coastal wetlands, restoring degraded grasslands, et cetera, uh, we can pull a lot of that CO2 back out of the atmosphere before it has trapped the radiant heat and you get unacceptable levels of climate change. Right. That's, that sounds very positive. How, how much time have we got for that, Tom? Because some of the changes that are required will, you know, in energy systems and things like that will have to unfold over decades. <laughs> so, you know, none of this is happening at the scale and rate it should. Um, I think the next 20 years are really critical. Uh, we have to begin to exert change which becomes exponential uh, instead of gradual and linear. Uh, I mean, this is basically a time to grab hold of managing the planet as the living system that it is. Right, because I guess some people talk about now the Anthropocene and that idea that we are aware now of the impact we're having um, on the world, on the environment and the climate. Do you think that the um, 
that that idea is, is makes us aware of not only the, the, the negative impact of what, you know, has happened, but the, I guess the potential to, to, to manage and, and, and the positive impact from the kind of uh, management systems you're talking about. So, so the power of this restoration concept uh, is first, uh, anybody who understands it, and it's not very complicated. Anybody who understands it uh, understands that the planet works not just as a physical system, but also as a biological system. So it's a linked biological and physical system, and we have to manage it that way. Uh, I think once that awareness begins to spread, it will really change people's attitudes uh, and concern about the underpinning biology of our civilization. Uh, but it also has another wonderful aspect in that it basically transforms climate change from being something that's so huge, what could I possibly do, to something rather like victory gardens in the Second War, uh, where everybody can plant a tree. Uh, each person can plant a tree or contribute to restoring a wetland or the like. Uh, so suddenly it empowers people to be able to make a difference. Right, that's interesting. When you talk about the connection between the physical and the biological, what do you mean and how aware do you think people are of that? So, you know, the temperature of the planet uh, is set by uh, some certain physical context, uh, context of where the planet is in the solar system uh, and its orbits and the rest, but it's also set very much uh, by the composition of the atmosphere, uh, and in particular, carbon dioxide. So if we didn't have natural levels of CO2 in the atmosphere, this would be a frozen planet. Yes. Uh, and the only reason life on Earth became possible uh, is because of a level of CO2 in the atmosphere that makes it a habitable temperature. Uh, well, as it turns out, we're now pushing it the other direction. Uh, and that makes very little sense uh, for ourselves, let alone the rest of life on Earth. Absolutely. This e ecosystem restoration, what scale of impact could this have? So, so today we know the excess CO2 from old ecosystem destruction is roughly equal to what remains of living ecosystems. It's 450 gigatons or billion tons. Um, and if you divide by 7.7, .7, uh, I will tell you how many parts per million of CO2 in the atmosphere is the equivalent. So to put that in context for everybody, uh, pre-industrial levels were 280 parts per million. Uh, we're currently slightly over 400 parts per million. Uh, if we want to get back to something that could support ultimately one and a half degrees, we've got to go back to about 350 parts per million. So you multiply 50 by 7.7, .7, 
and you get a number that's actually smaller than the amount of excess CO2 in the atmosphere from old ecosystem destruction. Uh, so the good news is that it's on a scale where it can make a real difference. And how aware are, do you think, institutional uh, players or governments and, and, and gen generally uh, the, the public about the potential here? So I think the the convention, the, the climate change convention, uh, in terms of what the ideal temperature limit should be, began to focus on that at their 2015 meetings in Paris when they talked about one and a half degrees. Um, but, but the potential of ecosystem restoration to contribute to this is only beginning to dawn on a lot of people. And the number that I gave you of 400, 450 uh, uh, gigatons uh, is a number that was only published in December. It's twice as big as had been previously thought to be the case. Uh, so that's, in one sense, it's really good news because of the potential uh, to pull it back through ecosystem restoration and end up with a habitable temperature. Right. Uh, presumably, that's a pretty widely distributed global uh, phenomenon in the sense of, uh, or at the same time, probably, uh, you know, the, the Amazon and the, there are a few key areas. Um, how would this be put into practice, do you think? I mean, at national governments through the, you know, Paris Agreement or what's your sense of how it, that might be actually turned into action? So it could become a major new effort under the uh, UN Framework Convention on Climate Change. Um, it also is a way that each individual nation can contribute through the convention to its agreed upon goals, because uh, pulling CO2 out of the atmosphere is a big plus on your national balance yes, sheet. Absolutely. Absolutely. So is this something that you're focusing on in, in your new book? Well, first, first of all, is that this book is, is, is intended to be a state of knowledge of the whole topic of biodiversity and climate change. But what's new about it and different about it from the previous one is the identification of one and a half degrees as the limit. Uh, and the whole proposition of using ecosystem restoration to get there. Right. And how did you come to this limit, the 1.5 limit? I mean, many people have, from various different uh, perspectives, talked about that being an important boundary. Um, but I guess this is something coming directly out of your, your biological diversity research. Yeah, well, so you can get there from other points of view. And uh, so the old target was 2.0 degrees. Uh, but that was not chosen for any intrinsic merit. It was just chosen at the time because it was thought to be possible. Yes. Um, and in fact, the last time the planet was two degrees warmer, the oceans were four to six meters higher. And I don't think you need to know anything more than that to know that two degrees is not a good idea. Um, but it's when, when you start looking at the sensitivity of the biology that you are 
you are also driven to like one and a half degrees. Right, right. Now, I know you've done a lot of work uh, over many decades and, and been in Brazil and on, on the rainforest and so forth. What about the ice sheets? Um, we talked about sort of tipping points to some extent. You know, there was 80 percent uh, forest forestation uh, in, in, in the Amazon. What, what's the situation with, with the ice? So the situation with the ice, of course, is this rapid decline in ice cover, um, not only in the Arctic Ocean, but in fact, in a way more seriously uh, on land in Greenland and Antarctica. Um, because land-based ice, when it melts, causes sea level to rise. Ice that's floating in the ocean when it melts does not affect sea level rise. It's just like an ice cube in a glass of water. Um, and one of the things that's happening there is as, as ice cover declines on the Arctic Ocean, the actual reflectivity changes from the white of the ice to the dark of the water. So there's even more rapid warming. Um, so the the whole ice picture is a very worrisome one. Yes, yes, absolutely. You've written, um, and I know about um, the, the whole area of ecosystem services, or uh, I guess some idea that if nature is free, seen to be free, that that causes all kinds of problems and you know, free riders and things like that. Um, so could you talk a little bit about the, the possibilities that you see in, in, in kind of payments or uh, for ecosystem services and those kind of ideas? So basically, you know, everybody on this planet is benefiting from ecosystem services, you know, every second of every day. Uh, and it's just usually not recognized at all. And a lot of people get very upset uh, about that topic because they think it's putting a price on nature. Uh, it is not putting a price on nature. It is simply recognizing some of the value that we get from nature. And as my good friend Pavan Sukdev likes to say, if you don't have a value, then its value is zero in decision making. And so it, it's, it's merely an important way to increase the way in which we incorporate the value of nature and ecosystem services into our daily decision making. Right. Because I know you mentioned that people have concerns and it, 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 uh, is it uh, fair to say it's part of a markets based approach? And there you know, are people who criticize, you know, cap and trade and green grabbing. And are there dangers associated with are, are there uh, things that need to be put in place to, to 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 make sure this is done properly? So the most important thing is not to undervalue it on. Um, but that's a lot more easily said than done. Um, but I think in the end, if you don't have any value for it, um, you won't recognize it as having, having any importance at all. Um, so there are just you know, tons of ways in which this goes on on a daily basis. And uh, one of the more interesting ones is the watershed forest that 
provides the the water to New York City. Uh, and in the 1990s, that watershed had been degraded to the point where the city was going to be required to spend $8 billion uh, to build a water treatment plant. And then somebody had the really bright idea that actually it would be a cheaper and more permanent solution uh, just to buy up some of the land in in the uh, Catskills and restore the biodiversity to its previous state and function. Uh, and that's literally what they did. And it cost 10% of what, you know, the mechanical water treatment plant uh, would have cost. Uh, and the problem is, you know, most people in New York City turn on the tap they have no idea of that background. Uh, so in my fantasy world, every car in the New York subway system would have an ad in it that says, have you thanked the New York City watershed today? Yes, yes. It is right at creating awareness. And uh, I guess carbon pricing is something, another question which um, there seems to be some momentum and certainly a lot of people argue for it and uh, there are good examples um, yet there are significant challenges instituting that. Uh, what about payments for ecosystem service and that kind of thing? Is that something that needs a global governance or is it primarily a, a series of local approaches? Um, how are we doing in terms of you know getting to the end game there? Yeah, so so my guess would be trying to go for some great cosmic global solution uh, would take so long and have so many hurdles in front of it uh, that not a lot would ever happen. So I think it's much more important for these things to take off somewhat spontaneously uh, in individual situations like watersheds of cities. Uh, which is happening in parts of South America at the moment. Um, it's, it's easily understood uh, and, uh, and progresses. And if you waited for some international scheme, you might wait far too long. Yes. Yes, I guess a final area I, I'd be interested in getting your thoughts. And you, you mentioned that the, one of the, the, the powerful aspects of uh, ecosystem restoration is that it puts climate change to some degree in, in the hands of everybody. Everybody can, can you know, make a difference. Um, what about other actors? I mean, in the United States, uh, the political uh, climate has changed dramatically. And yet at the same time, there does seem to be considerable momentum at, at, at state level or at, certainly at city level and with corporates. And I know you've worked in you know, some NGOs and also, you know, uh, some large institutions and uh, associated with, you know, uh, and, and finance and so forth. What role do you see for, for I guess, different kinds of uh, organizations? That's a big question here <laughs> to help uh, move the needle. So so what what's so encouraging uh, in the midst of the federal government, which is basically trying to evade its responsibilities uh, on environment as well as some other things, um, is is the response on the part of states and uh, cities and 
corporations, uh, which I think is highly likely to actually bring the U.S. to to uh, actually achieve it, the commitments it made at the Paris conference. Uh, but the bigger issue here for climate change, as it is for biodiversity, uh, is that none of what has happened so far is sufficient. And we have to change the scale of which good change is happening, and we also have to hurry it up. And what potential do you see there, Tom? So, you know, the, the world is, history is full of uh, examples of social tipping points when suddenly it just becomes apparent to enough people that change is necessary and then it becomes uh, basically uh, uh, exponential. <laughs> Are you optimistic that we're near that point? I mean, certainly you see in America... Um, you know, a very polarized society in many ways. And yet you see uh, rising up. I mean, we've seen the, you know, Me Too, uh, I guess, phenomenon, the force there. And, you know, more recently, I guess, the Parkland students uh, getting tremendous traction and on, 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 on a longstanding issue, you know, with respect to guns and so forth. Um, uh, from an American perspective, do you see, what kind of time frame do you see this unfolding? You, you're optimistic that, because the, the, the kind of uh, time frames that we need to really make, uh, you know, big action is, is uh, pretty scary. So, I mean, I think what's so interesting at the moment uh, is... Most of society is going in one direction, and the federal government is going in another, uh, except it's not going that massively and rapidly in the wrong direction. Uh, because as I said to my students on Inauguration Day last year, just watch American democracy deal with this process. And so there are many, many initiatives of the American administration uh, that basically are caught up in courts of law and things like that. Um, so I, I envision maybe not uh, until two plus years from now, uh, a time when the nation as a whole, not just at lowers of lo lower levels of government, uh, will be making tracks on environmental change. Right. What's on your mind now? Your book's going to be published. What are some of the crucial questions you're researching and that interest you? Well, um, I'm really interested in this whole question of one and a half degrees in ecosystem restoration and getting that I idea out there. Um, I also, as you know, I've been paying particular attention to particular attention to the Amazon because that's not only a place where I've worked for uh, more than 50 years but it's also a big piece of a stable earth system um, and so getting the whole idea out there that the Amazon has to be managed as a system uh, that there's a tipping point probably around 20 percent that it makes no sense to discover exactly where it is by doing the tipping. 
um, <laughs> yes. that, I, that I think we can get to a sensible outcome. Great, great. Well, thank you so much, uh, Tom. I wish you the best of success with the research projects and uh, uh, thank you so much for sharing the great work you're doing with the Sustainability Agenda podcast. Great, thank you. Thank you for listening to the Sustainability Agenda podcast. I hope you found it interesting. Please sign up at the sustainabilityagenda.com website or on iTunes to make sure you don't miss any future episodes.